This I recall to mind and therefore have hope. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed. His compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Cast thy burden upon the Lord and he will sustain thee. He will never suffer the righteous to be moved. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God might be equipped, thoroughly furnished for every good work. Before we begin our study of God's Word this evening, let's bow our heads together and make sure we're in fellowship. A few moments of silent prayer to make sure that we have uh, uh, confessed sins, if need be, in privacy between us and God the Father. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather together this evening as a body of believers to study your word for the freedom we have in this nation to do so. Father, we pray that as we study your word, that God the Holy Spirit, who is our teacher and instructor, will help us to understand the things that we cover, to see how they apply to our lives, that we might use them spiritually, that they would be profitable for our growth, that we may advance to spiritual maturity and glorify you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles to James chapter 1, verse 20. James 1, 20. We come into our study of James. We're concluding the introduction this evening. The first 20 verses of James comprises the prologue to this epistle. Last week, as we sort of organized our thoughts around an outline for this epistle, begins with the prologue. Prologue states the basic theme of the epistle, which is persistence in trials. As James outlines his thought, first of all, he begins with the correct response to trials. This is covered in the first uh, 11 verses, or really from verse 2 through verse 11. The first verse is simply a salutation. Then we have the incorrect response to trials, blaming God. This is always a temptation whenever somebody comes under adversity, unexpected uh, problems and testing in their life to somehow blame God. That it's always God's fault, and that's a result of arrogance in the life. When a person is uh, self-absorbed, they move towards self-pity, and before long they begin to blame God for everything that's going wrong in their life. And James reminds us in verse 17 and 18 that God is the source of every good thing in our life, that He is always faithful, He never changes, and He will always deal with us on the basis of His grace and His faithfulness. So the incorrect response is covered from verses 12 down through 18. And then C, he states the theme or the thematic structure of the epistle. Verses 19 through 20. And we spent most of the time last week analyzing the first word in verse 19. And we saw there that this is a, there's a twofold problem at the beginning of the verse. The first problem is a textual problem. Textual problem is a problem related to the original reading of the Scriptures. Remember, when we define the infallibility of Scripture, inspiration of Scripture, when we talk about the inerrancy of the Word of God, we're not referring to a translation. We're not even referring to uh, a Greek New Testament or a Hebrew Old Testament. We're referring to the inerrancy of the original manuscripts, that when God first breathed out the Scriptures, in the verse I quoted before we started, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. That is the word in the Greek, theop, Neustos. That's T-H-E-O-P-N-E-U-S-T-O-S and literally means God breathed. All Scripture is breathed out or exhaled by God through the human authors so that God, without overriding their individual personality, their individual style, their individual vocabulary, background, education, experience, that God, without overriding that, guarantees that what they wrote would be absolutely free from all error in the original manuscripts. And yet, in the course of the transmission of the texts, various copious errors have entered in, and sometimes there are 
two or three different readings of a particular passage. And so that brings us to the science of what's called textual criticism, which is the ability to evaluate various textual evidences to determine what the original reading would be. And we saw there from the analysis of internal evidence and external evidence that the original reading was based on the uh, verb, the command, the imperative, based on oida. It's not the uh, conclusion wherefore is found in the King James Version, but is a statement based, but is based on the verb oida. Then we had a second problem we looked at, and that's what we call a morphological problem. That is how to interpret the particular verb form, because the present active imperative form of oida and the present active indicative are identical. So you have to make a determination there, and we saw that it is consistent with the style of the author to begin with a second person plural imperative, and then to follow that up with third person singular imperatives, which is what we have in the case of verse 19. If this is the hista, which is the uh, present active imperative form of oida, that this would begin, know this. So James is bringing our attention to something through this plural imperative, which is a general mandate for the Christian life. And then he follows it up with third-person singular imperatives to give individual uh, mechanics, the principles by which the general mandate is fulfilled. And so the emphasis here is on knowledge, what the believer is supposed to learn in order to advance to spiritual maturity in the midst of adversity and trials. We are to know something. My beloved brethren reminds us that he is writing this epistle to believers. He's not concerned with soteriological truth, that is, doctrines related to salvation, bringing the unsaved to justification, but he is concerned with sanctification doctrine, how this Christian is to live the spiritual life so they can advance to spiritual maturity. From the correct translation, know this, you all know this, my beloved brethren, we learn, first of all, you cannot apply what you do not know. Too many people are running around the Christian life and going to church, and they don't really want to learn anything. They want, don't want to put themselves under the authority of a pastor teacher. They don't want to uh, discipline themselves uh, to have the academic discipline necessary to learn what the Bible has to say, to learn God's will for their life, and they just want application. And what happens is, if you have application. This is the, the process goes like this. First of all, you have to have interpretation. Interpretation is based on exegesis, which is your grammar, your word studies, syntax. Then you have historical background, which is isagogics. And then the organization of the material into various topics or categories which develops the ICE method of interpretation, isagogics, categories, and exegesis. That's the basic, basic methodology for interpreting Scripture. If you try to jump straight to application without doing your homework in isagogics, exegesis, or categories, number one, you can misinterpret the passage, and, thereby you, and as a result of that, you have misapplication or false application. Secondly, if a pastor, and this is so true in most churches today, just teaches application without teaching people how he got there, why do you, why have, do I say you need to do it this way, then you end up teaching something that is nothing more than morality. You're teaching people how they should live their lives without teaching people why they should live their lives that way, what the basis is, and they don't learn any mechanics for spirituality. And of course, this is the problem that we face over and over again in theology, both both historically and in terms of the contemporary situation, is we have, people have confused morality with spirituality. Morality is for believer and unbeliever alike. Morality is related to establishment principles. 
It is not that spirituality is immoral. It is that it is much higher than morality. Morality is a system of behavior, a system of virtue that is given for the survival of the human race and for its perpetuation and for its orderly conduct. Spirituality is directed only to the believer and is a unique life that is built upon the dynamics and the power of God the Holy Spirit as opposed to production of the flesh, production from the sin nature. And so application always comes from interpretation. You have to know something, you have to learn something before you can apply it. So the first principle was you cannot apply what you do not know. Secondly, you cannot know what you have not learned. And too many people think that somehow all you have to do is sit down when it comes to Bible study, when it comes to spirituality or the Christian life, that somehow it just comes to you out of the blue by some system of osmosis or mysticism or something like that, that you don't have to engage the mind, you don't have to think, and you don't have to go through the process of analysis. It's interesting how most people come to Christianity. They think that as soon as you start using words of more than two or three syllables, that somehow you're into Gnosticism and somehow you have um, uh, gotten away from the thrust of the Bible, yet the Bible uses uh, a, a vast vocabulary, a technical vocabulary, and the Apostle Paul especially, but Peter, John, James, all did this as well. They took words from the common language, the Koine Greek, and they would put them together. They would make new compound words. They would coin new words, a technical vocabulary to express the spiritual concepts and the doctrines that God had revealed to them. So this showed that there was a lot of thinking going on. There was a lot of analysis going on. And just like any other area of life, there must be thinking, there must be vocabulary, and there must be a lot of uh, mental perspiration in order to master the subject. No matter what it is in life, you have to learn a unique set of vocabulary. If you go out tomorrow, if you don't own a computer and you purchase a computer, you have to learn a whole new vocabulary. Now, that's daunting for people to learn about RAM and ROM and all sorts of other things, but, but yet, nevertheless, they do it. Everybody's capable of it. But people get the idea that just because it has to do with the spiritual life, that it must be communicated in one or two syllable words. And yet, the Bible is much more complex than that. And of course, there is doctrine for spiritual babies called the milk of the word, but then we are to get past that and go to the meat of the word so that we can advance to spiritual maturity. If we stay with milk, we'll never get anywhere. So what you, um, you cannot apply what you do not know, number one. Number two, you cannot know what you have not learned. Number three, you cannot learn apart from the discipline and concentration of the uh, classroom of the local church. This includes repetition and inculcation. It involves self-discipline and the decision to make Bible doctrine the highest priority in your life. That means that as you evaluate what you're involved in on a day-to-day basis and on a week-to-week basis, you arrange your schedule and you arrange the activities of your life in such a way that you can always be at Bible class, Sunday morning and Wednesday night. It's only twice a week. Some places have a lot more than that, but here the demands are not that great yet. Hopefully, we will get to a point where we can add another Bible class, but we have infrastructure things that we need to take care of. For example, I don't want to move to another Bible class until we can take care of the kids downstairs and have something for them and a number of other things. But I think that we need to eventually move to that point where we have at least one more night of Bible class. It's important to get that continual reminder in our lives of the Word of God. There's so much to learn and so much to cover, for us to think that we're going to do it in just two or three sessions a week is is not very realistic. So we need to look forward to having a a little more time, at least one more Bible class a week, in order to uh, continue to grow spiritually and emphasize those principles. Scripture says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So the emphasis is on the renovation of our thinking. How do we demonstrate, and that word that's translated prove, is really demonstrate, demonstrate through the evidence of our lives. How do we demonstrate that the will of God is good, acceptable, and perfect? 
through the renovation of our thinking. All of this is involved in this first command, know this, my beloved brethren. And then we move from a uh, second person plural to a third person singular command. In the Greek, this is from the verb eimi, E-I-M-I, which is the to be verb. And this is the present active imperative of the third person singular, which should be translated, let each of you be. And then you have to look at whatever the command is to fill in the rest of the verb. But let everyone be, first of all, quick to hear, secondly, slow to speak, and third, slow to anger. So this gives us three things. Quick to hear. Quick to hear means that we are going to make Bible doctrine the highest priority in our lives. We're going to do whatever it takes to make sure that we're learning doctrine. And if we can't be a Bible class, then we're going to get the tapes and we're going to listen to them. And sometimes it's good to get the tapes anyway and go over it for that repetition to make sure you come to understand the things that are covered. Quick to hear, first of all. Secondly, slow to speak. And third, slow to anger. Now we saw last time that this forms the outline for this epistle. Quick to hear from 2.21, or excuse me, from 1.21 down through 2.26. Slow to speak deals with the sins of the tongue, and that's the subject of chapter 3, from 3.1 down through 3.18. And then slow to anger is from 4.1 down through chapter 5, verse 6. And that gives us the outline of this epistle. Quick to hear, hearing the Word of God. And we saw last time that too often what we do when we get into adversity is we stop listening and we start talking. We start complaining to our friends. We start complaining to other people. We start uh, moaning and groaning about all the hard times we're going through rather than keeping our mouth shut and listening to doctrine and listening to the doctrine that's in our own soul and applying that. So we need to be quick to hear, first of all. Secondly, slow to speak. Don't get involved in the sins of the tongue, either blaming God or blaming others for the problems in our life. And then third, slow to anger. Anger here is further developed in the fourth chapter. Fifth chapter, fourth and fifth chapter, and we'll look at that when we get there. It's interesting when we come to verse 20 that anger of these three commands, anger is singled out for further expansion. Verse 20 begins for the or reads, "For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God." That begins in the English with the word "for," which is a translation of the Greek word "gar." which is second, comes second in the sentence in Greek because of Greek syntax. It's what's called a post-positive particle. And gar is an explanatory particle. Every time you see this, you know you're going to get an explanation. And James is going to explain why he says that we should be slow to anger. There's something significant about anger that he wants to emphasize and wants us to realize that in contrast to hearing and being quick to hear and slow to speak, we are to be slow to anger because this is a devastating problem in the spiritual life. Four, we could translate it because. We are to be slow to anger because, for a specific reason. Because the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. So first of all, we need to look at what the Bible says about the anger of man. There are two words in the Greek that are translated anger. The first is thumos, T-H-U-M-O-S, and the second is orge, O-R-G-E. Thumos has to do more with an emotional, a quick, heated, emotional response. Whereas orge has to do... Now, there's a lot of similarity between the two words. In many cases, they're virtually synonymous. 
but in some passages they're both used, and if there's going to be a distinction, then thumos is shaded just a little bit towards that quick emotional response, someone who's quick-tempered, whereas orge has to do with a steady uh, mental attitude. And what we have in this passage is the word orge, the orge of man. Now, let's understand a few things about orge. Usually, this word is translated wrath. Most of the time, in fact, it's translated wrath as opposed to anger. And it is, first of all, not always a sin. It's not always a sin. Turn with me to Mark chapter 3, verse 1, and we will see how Jesus manifested this type of anger in a particular situation. So if Jesus Christ had this type of anger, then obviously it's not always a sin. Why do we say that? Well, first of all, because of the hypostatic union. Let's review the doctrine of the hypostatic union. First of all, definition. The hypostatic union describes the union of two natures, divine and human, in the one person of Jesus Christ. He's undiminished deity and true humanity united together in one person. These two natures are inseparably united without loss or mixture of separate identity, without loss or transfer of properties or attributes, the union being personal and eternal. Jesus is undiminished deity and true humanity united in one person forever. So you have deity plus humanity. Because Jesus Christ was born of virgin conception and virgin birth, he did not inherit the genetic sin nature passed on through the male. So he was born without a sin nature, and without having, because he did not have a sin nature, there was no home for the imputation of, of Adam's original sin. So Jesus Christ was born sinless, minus a sin nature, and he had no personal sin during his life. That's the doctrine of the impeccability of Christ. In his deity, Jesus Christ was not able to sin because of the doctrine of immutability. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Deity cannot sin. Deity never could sin and never will sin. So in his deity, Jesus Christ could never sin. Yet in his humanity, he had that possibility. So in his deity, he was not able to sin. But in his humanity, he was able not to sin. He the scripture says, was tempted or tested in every category as we are, yet without sin. So he was absolutely sinless. So when we look at, the, at Jesus Christ in terms of the hypostatic union, and we see that he had anger, then we have to analyze that to see what we can learn about the nature of anger from that passage. Mark 3.1, and he, let's get the context. And he, that is Jesus Christ, entered again into a synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. So this is a constitutional defect. I think it's always important to notice that when Jesus or the apostles heal someone, these are not problems that you have so often today that that, uh, you go to these so-called healing services and the problems aren't obvious, number one, or they have to do with leg lengthening or some such... uh, Thing that's just not a constitutional defect. The healings that took place in the scriptures were constitutional defects that were obvious to one and all. And this was either a defect that had uh, affected this individual from birth or as a result of some disease. He had had an atrophy of the muscles in his, in, uh, his uh, hands so that it was absolutely useless and had been that way for some time. Verse 2. And they, that is the Pharisees, they were watching him to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath in order that they might accuse him. You see, doing the, the Pharisees had developed a vast number of regulations that they had imposed as a burden upon all of the people. It became known as Judaism. Although the Mosaic Law had a number of different mandates and requirements. What happened in the development of Judaism is people would look at a passage in the Mosaic Law and say, well, how do you apply that? And then the rabbis would come up with about 30 or 40 different 
different stipulations for just exactly how that was to be applied and under what conditions, etc. And so this created quite a burden on the people, and they decided that if you weren't supposed to work on the Sabbath, well, what consisted of work? Well, doing just about anything consisted of work. So um, healing someone would consist in work according to the Pharisees, and they were looking to see if Jesus would violate the Sabbath. Verse 3, And he, that is, Jesus said to the man with the withered hand, Rise and come forward. And he said to them, "Is Jesus addressing the Pharisees, Is it lawful? See, he never backed off of a confrontation. He just met it head on. Jesus never backed away from confronting, challenging, or offending the legalists. Now, he was very careful in being compassionate and caring to those who were sinners. He went to parties with tax collectors and prostitutes and all sorts of people the Pharisees wouldn't have anything to do with. And he never challenged them or seemed to confront them. And as we'll see even with the woman at the well, he never does it from a situation. When he does, he doesn't do it to embarrass anybody or to put them on the spot because of their sin. That's something that the legalists would do. But when he's dealing with somebody who's legalistic, Jesus never kowtows to them and he always confronts them at the very issue. So he asked them the pointed question, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to kill? He makes the issues very clear and they keep silent because they're not about to get into this. After looking around at them with anger, notice that, with orge, that's what the Greek says. After looking around at them with anger, Jesus is angry with them. Now this is what we would call a righteous indignation. We have to be very careful with this word. Righteous indignation. And I want to be careful in how we define the term. Because a lot of times we can convince ourselves that our anger is righteous indignation when it is in fact nothing more than self-righteous indignation. It is our sense of what is right or wrong that is offended and not God's sense. Now when we talk about righteous indignation, we must drive ourselves back to the plus R, the perfect righteousness of God. Let's look at, remember what we have said about the integrity of God. The righteousness of God is the standard of God's integrity. The justice of God is the application of that standard and toward his creatures. Love is the motivation in the divine character and grace is the expression of God's love to the human race. Now, when we talk about righteous indignation, we start off by having a correct understanding of righteousness here, that the standard is God's perfection. It's not human concepts of standard. It's not Jesus... Jesus is not being personally offended here. In a sense, he is because Jesus is deity. So this doesn't apply to you and me. It's not our standard. We become righteously indignant when we see the standard of God being offended. And we have to be very careful with that because the focus there is on God, not us. When we begin to identify so closely with God's standards that we make this a, a self-oriented indignation, then we're slipping into a false application of righteous indignation. Righteous indignation is when the standards of God are being violated, and that is the cause of our anger. Most of the time when we are angry, it is as a result of self-absorption. We're not getting our own way. Things aren't going the way we think they ought to go. Our agenda is somehow being thwarted or slowed down or violated. So the natural response is we get angry. Anytime you're angry, look around and see what's happening. At some point, you're not getting your way. That's the wrong kind of anger. That's from self-absorption. But this is an anger because God's character is being offended. And here Jesus is angry because God's not only is God's character being offended, 
but God's standards are being misrepresented by the legalistic system of the Judaizers, and it is putting a false burden on the people such that this individual, they want to forbid him for healing somebody simply because of their legalistic standards of the Sabbath. So Jesus is angry. This is the, the same word. That this is the noun form orge, but in, the, in Ephesians 4.26, we have the verb orgizomai, O-R-G-I-Z-O-M-A-I. And there we have the command, be angry and do not sin. Be angry and do not sin. And the point there is it's a certain type of anger. This is not a selfish anger, not an anger that is the result of not getting our own way, but an anger that is oriented to the character of God and His righteous standard. So the first thing we learn about orge is that it is not always a sin. But many times it is a sin when the issue is our own selfish orientation. Secondly, Orge is used as a technical term for the judgment of God against individuals and nations in time. It's also used as a term for the judgment of God, which we call the tribulation, the seven-year tribulation, which comes after the rapture of the church and prior to the thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth known as the millennium. And wrath is also used as a technical term for the eternal judgment of God on unbelievers in the lake of fire. So orge is primarily used as a technical term for the judgment of God in Scripture. Third, orge is used in conjunction with other mental attitude sins and emotional sins and sins of the tongue in two important passages. Ephesians 4.31 and Colossians 3.8. And these will be important. We'll come back to them again when we look at James 1.21, let me give you a preview of coming attractions for next week. James 1.21 begins. This is the beginning of the next section in the epistle. And James starts with a conclusion. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness. I just love the old King James. They translated it. Putting aside all superfluity of naughtiness. Now, doesn't that obfuscate the meaning of the passage? Putting aside there is the Greek word apotithemi. It's an aorist passive participle. A-P-O-T-I-T-H-E-M-I. Now, the reason I want to jump ahead and look at this verb is because we find this verb in these two passages, in Ephesians 4.31 and Colossians 3.8, where they're associated with anger. So let's look at these passages. Turn first to Ephesians 4.31. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31. Tonight we're having sort of a sword drill. Make sure everybody has an opportunity every now and then to know how to get around in their Bible and find the various books of the Bible. Everybody should know how to use their, their sword. I don't know if we do that downstairs. in the. Do we do that downstairs in the uh, classes with the kids, have them do a sword drill? That's good. That's good. I always loved that when I was a kid. Okay, Ephesians 4.31. Four, let's begin in verse 30. The command there is, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Now, this is important to understand what grieving the Holy Spirit is. When we trust Christ as our Savior, we have two relationships with God. One is described by the term positional truth. This is our identification with Christ, known by the technical term in Christ. We are identified with Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection, and this describes our eternal relationship with God, which is permanent and can never be lost. Then we have a relationship with God in time. This is In this sphere, we are under the filling of the Holy Spirit, yet whenever we sin, we lose the filling of the Holy Spirit, and we are in carnality, what the New American Standard translates, fleshly. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses one through three. 
We do, whenever we sin, this is said in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, as grieving the Holy Spirit. And then in 1 Thessalonians 5.19, it is called quenching the Holy Spirit. There's a slight difference between the, the meanings here. But for our purposes, when you're out of fellowship, you are grieving and quenching the Holy Spirit, and He is no longer the dominant influence in the life of the believer. And out here, you are under the control of the sin nature. Now, the only way to recover that is through the use of 1 John 1.9, the confession of sin, simply admitting or acknowledging your sin to God the Father. And at that moment, God the Father in His faithfulness instantly cleanses you and forgives you of all sin, even the sin you've forgotten about or that you didn't realize were sin, but everything is wiped clean and your sins are separated from you as far as the east is from the west and God will remember them no more. So in verse 30 we have the command to not grieve the Holy Spirit and in order to avoid grieving the Holy Spirit we are to do something positive in verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath there's our word orge, and anger, thumos, and clamor, that's getting into the sins of the tongue, um, griping, complaining, you didn't know those were sins, well, they are sins, complaining, all of that, moaning and groaning and whining about how difficult life is, all of that is, is sinful because you're not trusting God and looking at life from the divine viewpoint. Put aside all wrath and anger and clamor, and slander, a sin of the tongue, let all that be put away from you, along with all malice. In contrast, be kind to one another. These are the positive commands. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. So we have the command there to put aside, lay aside, and this relates to the fact that not, 1 John 1.9 is only the starting point. See, a lot of people have gotten the idea along the way that if I just confess my sins and then somehow I'm back in, in the bottom circle here under the filling of the Holy Spirit and it's just sort of automatically going, going to move me along in the Christian life. This is just a staging area. Now you are under the control of the Holy Spirit, but He doesn't override your vocabulary. I mean, He doesn't override your volition. You still have to make decisions on a daily basis, moment by moment, as to whether or not you are going to apply the mandates of Scripture. He is the underlying power in your life because you're filled with the Holy Spirit. But you, have to, you and I have to make decisions not to do certain things and to engage, not to, from a negative perspective, to, to avoid certain behavior patterns and mental attitude patterns, and from a positive perspective, to engage in certain uh, behavior patterns. So, verse chapter 4, verse 31, we're to put aside all bitterness, wrath, and anger. This is a result of not only stage 1, which is confession, but moving once we're filled with the Holy Spirit, we have to move into stage 2, which is application of doctrine. See, what happens with a lot of people, especially in spiritual infancy, and if we're honest, almost all of us did this when we were spiritually immature and didn't know any better. We thought of 1 John 1, 9 as some sort of license to sin. And as soon as we would uh, commit some sin, we would use 1 John 1, 9 and get back in fellowship and say, well, I'm going to do this and then I'll just confess it. And that's typical behavior for a baby. You know how it is, those of you who are parents, you look at your kids and they want to find out how much they can get away with in life. And so they're constantly testing you. They're constantly pushing you. 1 John 1, 9 is not a license to sin. What it is, it provides us liberty to, to recover from failure. And what happens in immaturity, a lot of people treat it as a license for sin, and they're not in fellowship, but maybe a nanosecond, and they're back out of fellowship. But eventually, after enough divine discipline, they decide, well, maybe there is something to this, and I need to start making some positive decisions and not just... Uh, not just use 1 John 1, 9 as a license to sin, and once I get back in fellowship, I better start applying some doctrine and making some good decisions from a position of strength and advance towards spiritual maturity. So that's what's involved here in Ephesians 4.31. Now let's turn over to Colossians chapter 3, verse 8. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, two books to the right. 
And we'll see a parallel passage. Colossians 3.8 reads, But now you also put them all aside. Anger, that's orge. Wrath, thumos. Or anger is uh, thumos. Wrath is orge. Malice, uh, that is another mental attitude sin of hatred, vindictiveness, seeking to destroy someone else in reaction to what they've done to you. Slander is a sin of the tongue and abusive speech from your mouth. So there we see the connection between mental attitude sins again and sins of the tongue. Now let's go back to our passage in James chapter 1. James 1 verse 20. The command has been to be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger because the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. We have seen about anger, first of all, that it's not always sin. Secondly, it's it's used as a technical term for the judgment of God against individuals and nations in time, for the tribulation period, and for eternal judgment of unbelievers in the lake of fire. Third, it's used in conjunction with other mental attitude sins and is connected with both emotional sins and sins of the tongue in Ephesians 4.31 and Colossians 3.8. And then fourth, and this is an important hermeneutical point, this is used in this passage as a figure of speech known as a, can't even spell it right, known as a synecdoche. Now, I know when you were in junior high and high school and you were studying poetry and figures of speech, you probably never covered this one, so we're going to have to take a little time to learn something about a figure of speech. A figure of speech is any form or expression in language that is not to be taken literally, but is used in order to convey a broader meaning through the use of of symbolism or comparison. Uh, Certain types of uh, figures of speech would be a, a simile. A simile is a stated comparison, that something is as white as snow. That's a stated comparison. A metaphor is an unstated comparison. And that would be just to ca- talk about somebody's, call it snowy hair. Well, it's not really snow, but the comparison is unstated. So a simile is a stated comparison, a metaphor is an unstated comparison, and there are hundreds of different types of figures of speech used in the Bible. And a synecdoche is the kind of, of uh, figure of speech where there is an exchange of one idea for another associated idea. The exchange of one idea for another associated idea. And here we have the category of synecdoche known as the synecdoche of the species, where one example is given, which stands for a broader category. So here we have the example, the, the one word that is used is anger, but it stands for the entire complex of mental attitude sins and emotional sins. It's representative of that. And when you turn, hold your place here, if you turn over to chapter 4, which explains this whole concept of being slow to anger, starts off talking about what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you. Of course, whenever we quarrel or there are conflicts, personal conflicts, there's always anger involved. Anger is what's going on behind the scenes. It's not the source of your pleasures that wage war in your members. You lust and do not have. You commit murder. You fight and you quarrel. All of these things are all the result of the underlying problem of anger. So anger represents the entire complex of emotional and mental attitude sins that plague the believer. And that is why James has singled out the anger of man in this passage, and anger, because mental attitude sins are among the most devastating to the spiritual life. Usually when you ask people, well, what do you think are the worst sins? They'll start off, they'll talk about murder and adultery and thievery and maybe a few other overt sins, and very rarely do they get to those very terrible and destructive sins of bitterness, anger, hatred, revenge motivation, which underlies so many overt sins. The anger of man, therefore, represents, is a synecdoche of the species, which represents the broader category of emotional sins. Now, what are the emotional complex of sins, and of what does that consist? 
Well, there are various subcategories to the emotional complex of sense. First of all, there is the hysteria category. The hysteria category, which includes fear, worry, anxiety, panic, consternation, and irrationality in a state of fear. Emotional sins are reaction. This is when you hit your trial, the test, the adversity in your life, and you immediately react emotionally. That's why we're commanded to be slow to anger, not to react, but to slow down, to focus on what the Word of God says, to take our time, not to push the panic button. Hysteria categories, fear, worry, anxiety, panic, consternation, irrationality, and a state of fear. The second category of emotional complex of sins is the revenge category. This includes malice, the lust to inflict injury or suffering on others, revenge motivation, and revenge modus operandi. Violence, murder, vituperation, which includes sins of the tongue such as gossip, slander, maligning, and judging, vilification, which is creating a public lie about someone who is the object of your jealousy, hatred, vindictiveness, or implacability. So revenge is a desire to inflict harm on someone either because of a real or perceived injury. Third category of emotional complex of sins is the hatred category. The hatred category, which includes anger, hatred, bitterness, jealousy, loathing, animosity, implacability. You begin to focus all of your energy on one person whom you blame for all your problems. The hatred complex. Fourth, the irrational category. The irrational category. This includes tantrums, vulnerability to imagined insults or snubs, self-pity, whining, denial, and projecting blame on other people. Denial is when you, you deny the reality of the situation, your own responsibility, and projection is when you place that responsibility for your own problems on someone else. And then fifth, there is the guilt category. The guilt category includes remorse for real or imagined sins. This is the person who goes out and does something and it shocks them so much that they think that their sin's so great that uh, God can't forgive them, so they have to somehow impress God with their sincerity uh, for uh, how much they're, they're sorry for their sin, and they won't ever do that again. And, of course, God in His omniscience knows you'll probably do it again in another month or two and shock yourself all over again, so He's not at all impressed with all of your uh, emotional uh, caterwauling and all of your bargaining. Uh, real or imagined uh, guilt for real or imagined sins, morbid self-reproach, Emotional feelings of culpability, self-righteous arrogance, and arrogant preoccupation with your own feelings and impulses. This is always associated and goes into some form of legalism. So you see how the emotional complex of... ...a vast array of problems and overt sins in the Christian life. The passage reads, For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Now, that is not a clear translation. The verb here is the present middle indicative of the verb ergodzomai. From the Greek word ergo, this is spelled E-R-G-A-Z-O-M-A-I. And the root meaning is to work or to produce. We get the English word ergonomics from the Greek word ergodzomai, ergo, to work, to produce. So it describes production. Production in the spiritual life is related to the fruit of the Spirit and that which God produces in our lives. For the anger of man does not, cannot, will not produce the righteousness of God. Now, the issue here then is described by the verb is production. What is production in this Christian life? 
Well, in the spiritual life, we can produce either divine good or human good. Let's go to our diagram of the sin nature. And the sin nature tempts us to sin, but it does not become sin until it is acquiesced to by the volition. So the sin nature offers the temptation in the, in the test to react. We react with anger. We react with uh, hatred or some other emotional sin, and now we're out of fellowship. And in a position of being out of fellowship, we then try to produce good deeds to make up, for, especially if we're operating on a guilt complex, to make up for the sin. And human good cannot produce the righteousness of God. Let's go back to what we learned about the character of God. The righteousness of God is His standard. What the righteousness of God demands, the justice of God executes, motivated by the love of God, and expressed by the grace of God. Now, what the righteousness of God rejects, the justice of God condemns. So what we have seen in the spiritual life is that with the unbeliever, we are, and every one of us are born in sin, we are minus R, and there's nothing we can do in life so that we can be plus R. But at the moment of faith in Christ, we have, God imputes to us the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He who knew no sin was made sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. So our righteousness problem is solved through the doctrine of imputation when God credits to our account the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. This is the result of faith alone. For what does the Scripture say? And Abraham believed God, and it was imputed to him as righteousness. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. So the first category of righteousness is imputed righteousness. Imputed righteousness is that which is graciously bestowed on the believer at the moment of faith alone in Christ alone. The result of that is the basis for all of the blessings in the Christian life. Now this is so important to understand. Here's God in heaven. God is plus R and He is absolute justice. Down here, we are minus R but we are covered or clothed, the Scripture says, by imputed righteousness. So when God the Father looks down on us, He creates a grace pipeline. His perfect righteousness looks at the perfect righteousness which we have, that is the righteousness of Christ. And what the righteousness of God approves, the justice of God blesses. So blessing then comes down the grace pipeline to the believer. Now grace blessing comes in two categories. First of all, there's logistical, logistical grace blessing, which takes care of all of our basic needs, both physically and spiritually. And secondly, there are advanced, or what I call contingent grace blessings. These are blessings that God has determined to give each and every one of us from eternity past. They have nothing to do with our obedience. It's not a bargaining chip. Lord, I went to church today, so now give me that blessing. That's not the issue. The issue is capacity. Capacity is developed through the production of righteousness. As we grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, we go from spiritual infancy towards spiritual maturity. As we advance spiritually, we develop the capacity to appreciate and to use those blessings that God has for us. God knows that there are many blessings that He has for us, that if we do not advance to a certain point spiritually where we can use those responsibly, that they will indeed destroy us because in our spiritual immaturity we will misuse and abuse them. So the blessing comes as a result of our spiritual growth. So as we grow spiritually... We produce righteousness. This is also called, a synonym for this is divine good. What I will call production righteousness. So we have to look at what the scripture says about this category of righteousness. It's not to be confused with imputed righteousness. Imputed righteousness has to do with our position in Christ. 
moment of salvation. We put our faith alone in Christ alone. We're united positionally in Christ. Here we have positional righteousness. That is ours forever. It never changes. But what we're talking about is the righteousness that takes place in the bottom circle under the filling of the Holy Spirit, which is production righteousness. When we're out of fellowship, we produce human good and under the control of the sin nature. And it is only when we confess our sins and we're back in fellowship that under the power of the filling of the Holy Spirit and the application of the Word of God can we produce righteousness. Point number one. The goal of the Christian life is the character of Christ. We are not to be conformed to this world, but conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, Romans 12.2, and that comes about through the renovation of our thinking. This is exemplified in the production of the Holy Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. But the fruit of the Spirit, fruit is production. That's what that word means. It means production. The production of the Holy Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. The spiritual life, when we're under the control of the filling of the Holy Spirit and applying doctrine, the result of that is it begins to transform our character into the character of Jesus Christ. The image of Christ is formed in us. That is the direction of spiritual maturity to make us like Christ. Point number two. This was one of the reasons Christ died as a substitute for us on the cross. He did not die for you and me so we could live life on our terms. He died for us so that we could be transformed into His character eventually so that we could be successful witnesses in the angelic conflict. 1 Peter 2.24 says this, And He Himself bore our sins in His body on the cross. Then we have a purpose clause. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. That's application righteousness. That is production righteousness. For by His wounds you were healed. Point number three, production righteousness is spelled out as the goal of divine discipline and the purpose for passing testing in Hebrews 12.11. That's just a couple of chapters back, so let's look at the context of Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. The context in Hebrews 12 is very similar to the context of the entire epistle of James. In fact, the vocabulary is very similar. For example, let's start in verse 3 just to pick up the context. For consider him, that means focus on Christ, occupation with Christ. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners, that's adversity testing, endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. In other words, we are to persist in endurance. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood and you're striving against sin. See, we're to strive against sin. There's a fight there. It's volition. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by Him. For those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines and He scourges every son whom He receives. When we're out of fellowship out here, we're in the realm of divine discipline. God's goal for us is to produce the character of Christ. And when we're out of fellowship, God is going to do everything in His power to get our attention to rebound, to confess our sins and move back into fellowship so that we can continue to advance spiritually. Point, verse 7. It is for discipline that you endure, for God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. And then we'll just skip on down to verse 11. We've established the subject of discipline. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. We can all identify with that and say amen. We remember that as children. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful, yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful, what? Fruit of righteousness. 
So the purpose of divine discipline is to get us to confess our sins, get back in fellowship, and continue our advance in the spiritual life so that we can produce righteousness. Our character is transformed. This is not to be confused with morality. This is a higher system of virtue in the Christian life known as spirituality, and it is done under the filling of God the Holy Spirit. This is not a pull-yourself-up-by-your-bootstraps moral improvement session. That, unfortunately, is what's going on in most churches. You can produce a lot of human good under the power and energy of the flesh, but it has no value in the angelic conflict, it has no value in your relationship with God, and it has no value in eternity. What we are talking about here is true spiritual growth, which is energized by the power of God, the Holy Spirit. So Hebrews 12:11, we see point number three, production righteousness is the goal of divine discipline and for us to pass our testing. This same thought is reiterated in Ephesians 5, 8 through 10. For you were formerly darkness. See, that, that's this realm out here is called darkness or incarnality. You were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Okay, this is darkness out here. Darkness is used both for positionally lost as well as carnality. In the first part of this verse in Ephesians 5.8, you were formerly darkness, i.e. you were formerly an unbeliever. But now you are light in the Lord. That's our position in Christ. But... Now, so, and then the command is to walk as children of light, which means that you can, as a believer, walk as children of darkness. And that's the biggest confusion for many people today is they don't realize that a believer can live out here in carnality and commit all the same sins he could commit as an unbeliever and live just like an unbeliever and have a life that is virtually indistinguishable from an unbeliever simply because he's still under the power and control of the sin nature. But the command in Ephesians 5.8 is to walk as children of light. That means use 1 John 1.9 and come under the filling of the Holy Spirit. And then Ephesians 5.9 says, for the fruit of the light. Notice throughout these verses we keep hitting this word fruit. The production of the light, that is light filled with the Holy Spirit, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. So production righteousness is the goal of divine discipline and passing our testing. Point number four, the mandate therefore is to produce righteousness. 2 Timothy 2.22 and 1 Timothy 6.11. They say almost the same thing, so I'll just read 1 Timothy 6.11. But flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, that is the spiritual life, advancing in the spiritual life, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. These are to be the priorities in the spiritual life, the goal of a transformed life manifesting the character of Christ under the filling of God the Holy Spirit. And point number five, production righteousness is the result of the renovation of the thinking based on Bible doctrine. Don't get the cart before the horse. The goal is not to go out and try to morally renovate your life. The goal is to renovate your thinking. It is changed from the inside out. You start with thinking God's thoughts after Him, changing from divine viewpoint to human viewpoint, coming to Bible class, going through the process of learning doctrine, assimilating doctrine, metabolizing doctrine, and then over the course of time, as you apply what you have learned, under the filling of the Holy Spirit, there is a transformation that takes place. Production righteousness is the result of the renovation of the thinking. Based on Bible doctrine, it is not moral reformation through the energy of the flesh. 2 Timothy 3.16 gives us the mechanic. All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correct, correction, and for what? For training in righteousness. That is production righteousness. It is not imputed righteousness. The Apostle Paul reiterates that in Philippians 1, 9-11. And this I pray that your love may abound still more and more. How? It's not just, oh, I'm going to go love people, but in, in real knowledge or by means of real knowledge. It starts with knowledge. It starts with learning Scripture. 
And then the application is in the advance in spiritual maturity and impersonal love for all mankind so that you may approve the things that are excellent, that's decision-making on a day-to-day basis, in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with what? The fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ. So the goal of the spiritual life is production righteousness which comes through spending maximum amount of time in the filling of the Holy Spirit, learning and applying doctrine. So when we come to James chapter 1, it says the wrath of man or the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. And then next time we'll come back to verse 21 and we will see how the Word of God fits in. These are the two power options in the spiritual life. The filling of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God or Bible doctrine. Nothing else. These two, and both must be there, they work together in tandem. You can't have one without the other. If you try to have the filling of the Holy Spirit without any doctrine, you usually end up in some form of mysticism that has nothing to do with the Holy Spirit. If you try to have doctrine without the filling of the Holy Spirit, then you end up in some system of human morality and legalism, and it has nothing to do with the unique spiritual life of the church age. So you have to have these two together working in tandem, and that will be the beginning point for our study next Wednesday night in verse 21. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we thank you for the opportunity to study your word and to be reminded of these important doctrines related to the production of righteousness in our lives, that this is why Christ died for us, for our spiritual maturity, our spiritual growth, purpose for your discipline is to conform us to the image of Christ and so you are engaged in the task of producing in us this righteousness. It is built upon the positional righteousness which we have in Christ and is manufactured through the Holy Spirit and through the doctrine which we have metabolized and assimilated into our souls. Father we pray that we will remember these things and God the Holy Spirit will motivate us through them. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.